You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. We are working our way through this series of uh, looking at who we are as the church, looking at different metaphors that there are in Scripture. And today I have got the task of unpacking for you what we mean by uh, saying that we are the temple. This is one of the ways in which we are described as God's church in Scripture. So if you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, we're just going to read these verses. I'm going to land on these verses, but we'll use them as an introduction. And then we're going to go a bit of a, a roundabout route through uh, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It won't take long. And, um, and then we will land on 1 Peter 2. So here we go, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 6. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And that is uh, quoting from Isaiah 28. So it talks about us here. There's several metaphors, and we're going to try and unpick these. I overlap a little bit with Tom speaking in a little while about the priesthood, so I'm going to do my best to pinch all the best I can from that before he gets to it. And, uh, but there's metaphors of uh, us being a spiritual building, that is a temple, of being a priesthood, of offering spiritual sacrifices, which we're going to come back to a little later in the message. But uh, a spiritual house, a temple, what exactly do we mean by that? It's very, very simple. A temple is where... God meets mankind. It's as simple as that. What's the purpose of a temple? It's a place where God and mankind can come together. And I want to unpack the way that that is uh, viewed and treated all the way through Scripture. Uh, Very briefly, there's many, many ways in which this expresses itself. But let's have a look from Genesis through to Revelation. So in the first uh, few chapters of Genesis, we see God walking in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Man and God together. And uh, this is uh, a beautiful metaphor of, it's a prototype, if you like, of the temple. It's possible because sin has not yet entered into the world. The place of meeting between God and man is a very special place because it's a holy place. It's a place where nothing impure can enter. If there is anything impure in the presence of our God, God's holiness is so absolute and so brilliant that if anything impure comes into God's presence, it is instantly consumed by his holy fire. That's just the way it is. You know, it's just here he is. Nothing impure can stand in God's presence. But here we have the Garden of Eden. It's like the prototype temple. It's a prototype meeting between God and man. And uh, then we know we have the tragedy that uh, through Adam and Eve, sin entered the garden, and at this point, that could be a very, very short Bible. (laughs) At that point, God could have destroyed the mankind he'd just created, because nothing impure can come into his presence. But this is the mercy of God. When God banished mankind from the garden, from the prototype temple, It was actually an outworking of his mercy. It sounds like, oh, you know, God was really mean and he threw them out of the garden. No, it was a merciful thing for him to do 
Because if he had allowed us to stay, we would have been consumed by his holiness. Do you see that? No impure thing can come into the presence of God. And this meeting place between God and man is the, the temple that we read about all through Scripture. So out of God's mercy, he banished mankind from his presence and then set into motion a plan to make it possible for us to come back into his presence again. And we start to see that being unpacked and unfolded all the way through Scripture. We read a little later in Exodus of the tent of meeting when Moses was leading the people of Israel through the desert. The people of Israel had uh, rebelled against God at Sinai and created the golden calf. So they were defiled. They were a defiled people. So when God wanted to speak to Moses, who was acceptable to him, Moses had to pack up a little tent. <laughs> you just imagine this and walk out of the town, leave the camp behind because it was defiled, and make his little tent, sit in his tent. And then the presence of God would come in a, in a pillar of cloud and would look in the door of the tent and have a chat with Moses. And so you have this tent of meeting. It's another expression. It's a meeting place of man with God. And so it's the first time we see a structure being referred to in the sense of a temple or meeting place between God and people in Scripture. The whole idea develops. God gives instructions to build a tabernacle. Detailed instructions to Moses to construct a special, a special tent of meeting. Many, many chapters of scripture devoted to discussing its proportions. The most holy place. Who can approach the holy God in the most holy place? And when? Which was namely only the high priest. And only he was allowed to do this once a year after going through all sorts of ritual. But it was the only place where God would meet mankind while they were wandering in the desert. And when the people of Israel arrive in the promised land, the tabernacle remains the Focal point for the people of God is of where the presence of God was concentrated. If they wanted to have any sort of communion with God, it could only be done in that context. That was the temple. That was the meeting place. So later on, we read that God gave instructions for the construction of a permanent temple. We know this was uh, on David's heart, and Solomon was the one who eventually uh, brought this about. There are very detailed instructions, again, for the dimensions of the temple, according to God's design, very specific conditions, teaching that the only way his people can approach God is by the means that God himself has ordained, by the sacrifices that God himself has commanded, on the terms that God lays out, by the priests that God ordains, by the shed blood that God himself prescribes. And all of this, for those who are following this, you will know it's pointing us somewhere. It's pointing us somewhere. But this was the temple. This was the, where mankind and God could meet. It was the only place they could meet. So this, we know there's many other twists and turns to the story. I'm giving you a very compressed narrative here. But just so you can follow and track this idea of temple being where God and mankind meets. From Eden through the tent of meeting, through the tabernacle, through the temple. And then we uh, see right at the, uh, the close of, of the Old Testament narrative that the temple is rebuilt again under the ministry of Nehemiah. And there's a little bit of a gap. And then we come into the New Testament era. We come into the days of Jesus. And very early on, Jesus says this in John 2.19. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And nobody understood what he meant. His enemies thought he was blaspheming. Oh, he's going to come and destroy the temple. There you go. We told you he was no good. And his disciples didn't understand him. And John very humbly points towards this just a few verses on where he quietly mentions after Jesus was raised from the dead, then his disciples remember these words and they believe the scriptures. Suddenly, oh, now I know what he means. He didn't mean this physical temple made of stone. That wasn't what he was talking about. He was talking about himself. He was talking about his own body. 
But if you destroy this body, in three days it will rise again. That's what Jesus was referring to. Did Jesus say he was going to destroy the temple? No, he didn't say that. That's what people thought he meant, but he didn't say that. Nevertheless, the temple would be destroyed sometime later. We know it was. And there is no longer any requirement for it. We do not need a structure of stone as a meeting place with God. We don't need that anymore. We no longer need a stone-built structure and all the temple law and all this stuff about how we can get access to God because a stone-built, man-made temple is no longer the place where God meets with mankind. Okay? Now we have a new temple. We have a new temple that can never be destroyed. So turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews 10 and verses 8 to 14. Let's just read these verses together. When Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days we'll raise it up, he was speaking about himself, that he would be crucified as the once for all perfect atoning sacrifice for the sin of all mankind. So it says here in Hebrews 10 verse 8, first he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. And then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, He waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Anybody stirred by this truth? We cannot enter. We are defiled. We are unclean. We're sinful men and women. We cannot enter into the presence of God. The only way man can have any access to God is through the slaying and slashing of many creatures and the shedding of their blood so that we may atone temporarily for our sin because God in his forbearance was holding on and waiting for Jesus to come who would be the one perfect atoning sacrifice by whose blood we would all be made clean. Now we are clean, we can come into the presence of Jesus. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have been made clean, so now God can dwell with us. Yeah, How can we, sinful and unclean, now enter into the presence of God, who can tolerate no unclean thing, because we are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We don't come in in our old filthy rags. We've been clothed. We are in Christ. In Christ, we're acceptable to God. We can come and meet with him. We will not be consumed by his holy fire because he sees us as he sees his own son. And this is a permanent status for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are hidden in him. Okay, This is a once-for-all atoning sacrifice. And when you receive that by faith, it's finished. It's done. You won't slide out of heaven. Okay, The bulls and goats of the world can rejoice. We no longer need their blood. We've got better blood now. We've got the blood of Jesus that has atoned for sin for all time and washes us clean. We come and we can be washed clean by blood. How ghastly does that sound? How true it is. 
by the sprinkling of blood, we are cleansed so that we may enter boldly into the presence of God. And so Jesus himself, his body becomes the temple. Jesus is the temple. He is the real ultimate meeting place between God and sinful people. He is the ultimate priest. He is the ultimate sacrifice. His flesh is the veil. His shattered, broken body is the shattered, broken temple that rises on the third day to become the real meeting place between God and sinful people. Amen. Jesus is where we come and meet God. He's the temple. He says, I am the way. You want to meet God? Come to Jesus. He's the way. You think, oh, I don't feel very holy. I feel a long way from God. I better do some holy things first. <laughs> do some praying and some, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, uh, sort of holy stuff so that then I'm acceptable to God. No, you have been made acceptable by the atoning, fully satisfying sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So you can now be restored to the presence of your Father. Amen. So why are we going through all of this? Let's see. Let's now try to bring this into land. Why have I gone into this detail? What can you take home from what I'm sharing here today? There are three things I want to cover. First of all, I wanted just to track the theme of the temple through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation with you. Okay, and we can get uh, through to this in, in Revelation 21. If you've got your Bibles there, turn. I just want to point out two or three things which are really thrilling. So here it says in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven, a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Hallelujah. This is our destiny. Yeah. A little further down, it's a very, very interesting little side note. If you get down to verse uh, 16, it says, The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Any mathematicians here? What structure has length and width and height that are all the same? A cube. There's only one other time when those dimensions are cited in the Old Testament. Where is the only other time you will find a cube described in the Old Testament? The tabernacle. It is the dimensions of the most holy place. The dimensions of the most holy place are a cube. And here we are now. We're describing Jerusalem. It's the most holy place. It's the most holy place. All of us, we have access into the most holy place. We see this city built from beautiful gems, beautiful stones. It's built from beautiful, precious metals. We are those stones. We're the living stones of this temple. You decide which precious gem you'd like to be today. Today, Matthew, I'd like to be a diamond. It's the testimony of what God has done in your life. The beautiful, redeeming, sacrificial work of Christ in your life has brought about something very, very precious. And these are the stones from which Jesus is building his temple. These are the stones from which he is building the city where you will reside and where God will dwell. And then it goes on to say here, I saw no temple in verse 22. Oh, hang on. We just thought we were talking about building the temple. No, it says, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So the meeting place, a temple, as I've tried to unpack for us here, the temple where God and man meet. The temple, we don't need a stone-built structure because we've now got Jesus. He is where we come together and meet God and enjoy his presence. Now, why is it important to... uh, 
unpack that all together. Well, you will hear people from time to time, you'll read this and hear this, you know, if you're a fan of the God Channel or anything like that. You'll hear people from time to time say it's really important that we go back to Jerusalem and we rebuild the temple. Has anybody ever heard anybody say that? Yeah, no, you're going to pretend you've never heard that ever, aren't you? Never heard that, Maurice, never heard that. Well, if you ever hear anybody talking about let's go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, take them to one side and just say, you're wasting your time. (laughs) And you're wasting your money. There are better ways to spend your time. There are better ways to spend your money because we don't need that temple anymore. That temple was a type. It was a foreshadow. It was pointing us towards another temple, the temple of the body of Jesus, who would be smashed and torn down, and three days later will be raised again, so that we would no longer need to have go all through this temple law and all this ritual, so that one bloke once in a year with a, a rope tied round his ankle could go into the most holy place, and we could pull him out if it all goes a bit wrong. We can all go into the most holy place, into the cuboid most holy place. So we don't need a building of stone to meet God. Yeah, this isn't a sanctuary. We're the sanctuary. God is the sanctuary with us. We're the stones. You know, it's not that this place is the sanctuary. You know, it's, 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 you know, there are beautiful spaces where we can worship God. This isn't the most beautiful space. But there are some beautiful spaces where we can worship God. But that's not a sanctuary. God says, no, I'll be a sanctuary. Jesus is the temple. We come to him. We've received complete reconciliation in Jesus. We don't need a mediating priest because Christ is our priest. And this leads me on to my second point. Okay, first of all, I just wanted us to get a grip of, of the narrative of the temple through Scripture. Secondly, this is why Jesus is very precious to us. In 1 Peter 2 verse 4, it says he is a chosen and precious stone. This should stir in us the deepest love for Jesus. Because there is no other way back to the Father. There is no other way. Okay, I can't find any other way. I can't point you in any other direction. There's only one way I can point you in order for you to be reconciled to God, to know the presence of your Father again, and that is to go through Jesus. There's no other way. He is the only way to God. He is the only way to be alive forever. He is the only way to be a dwelling for God. He is the only way we can do anything acceptable to God, and which is why in verse 7 it says he is precious, is costly to us who believe, is infinitely precious. He is the pearl of great price. There is no greater value in the universe than Jesus. He is more to us than anything or anybody. So if you want to get an idea of what this church is about, you're thinking, what is this church about? What are their doctrines and values? What do they stand for? What's this? I'll tell you, this is my strategy. Yeah, Our strategy is a leadership. We lead you to Jesus. He does the rest. All right? Okay, I could have gone to Bible college for three years. I didn't go because I figured it out. I lead you to Jesus. He does the rest. If you are devoted in your heart to Jesus, if you love Jesus with all your heart, if he is for you the most precious, precious stone, then I can stand back because he'll do the rest. Yeah? His power will envelop you. His power will thrust you out to, uh, with zeal to join him in his zealous mission. I won't have to persuade you or encourage you to go to church because you know Jesus laid his life down for the church. So you're going to lay your life down as well. So yeah, Jesus, this is all for you and all for your kingdom purposes in these days. You're going to love people the way Jesus loves people. He, loved, you know, he, he wasn't motivated uh, simply by holy justice. He was motivated primarily by love. Yeah? 
And so if we are genuine disciples of Jesus, we will similarly be motivated. And we will be overflowing with compassion and love for broken, needy people around us. And for arrogant and proud people who are standing against God. We will love them. We will be intimidated by them. So our job as a leadership is actually very, very simple. Our job is to lead you into the deepest appreciation of Jesus. And if we are able to do that, then Jesus will do the rest. He will lead you. He will lead you into beautiful, lush pasture. And I won't have to say, oh, come on, church is really important. You'll know that because Jesus laid his life down for the church. I won't have to say, come on, love your neighbor. You'll know that because we love as we've first been loved by Jesus. I won't have to say, give everything you have to, uh, to God because you know you're making yourself a disciple of someone who gave his whole life. So this is why Jesus is very precious to us, very, very precious. And then thirdly and finally, we read further on in, in 1 Peter 2 that we're being built into a spiritual house, living stones of a living temple, a dwelling place for God. It says in verse 5 of 1 Peter 2, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So whenever we gather together, we are the stones of a living spiritual building in which God will dwell by his presence. That's why these gatherings are very, very precious. That's why it's so helpful to gather together, whether we're gathering together here on a Sunday, whether we're gathering together on a Wednesday, or whenever your small group uh, might be meeting. Uh, Jesus says, where two or three of you gather, I'm going to be there with you. When we gather together in this way, the presence of God comes to Ipswich in a special way that won't happen otherwise. Yeah? This is really important, folks. Okay, you've not just pitched up to a meeting just to listen to a guy rant for half an hour and go home again. You've come so that together we can be the stones of a living temple and the presence of God comes to Ipswich in a unique way, just as he will with every other gathering of believers who have gathered in the name of Jesus across this town and around the world. And so if we're looking to introduce God to people who don't believe, maybe you are here and you don't believe in all of this. You've been very patient, listening, but actually it's not for you. You don't believe in this. I'm appealing to you, okay? When you come among us here, you have the opportunity to encounter God in person, okay? That is our bold appeal, all right? You've not just come here to listen to an interesting message or an uninteresting message or to sing a few songs. You've come here. We are convinced that when we come together, God chooses to manifest his presence and you will meet him. I, I'm not going to try and argue you into the kingdom of heaven. I'm not going to try and win an argument with you. You might beat me. You probably will. I'm not very bright. All right? But if you meet God, if you encounter his powerful presence, if you encounter his love, that's a different matter altogether. All right? And we want you to come and meet God. We want you to come and meet your Father in heaven, the one who loves you more than anyone else. He doesn't want to come and crush you. He wants to come and heal you. He wants to save you and rescue you and deliver you. And you're coming into his temple here. Not stones, but living stones. Men and women who have all discovered this for themselves in Jesus Christ. And as you come among us, you will meet God. I am convinced of that. And as we come together in this way, the Bible says in 1 Peter 2 that we're going to be bringing spiritual sacrifices. Let's unpack that just briefly together. What does that mean? Well, a sacrifice 
implies cost, does it not? Yeah, if we're bringing something that doesn't cost us anything, then it's arguable that that's not really a sacrifice. Okay, so if you, uh, we're going to be having an offering a little later on here, okay? If you bring uh, uh, nothing to the offering, and we'll explain what the offering is for in a little while, but just for the sake of this discussion. When I was preaching about this this morning, I finished on this point, and I left everybody really miserable. So I'm starting this point a little bit earlier so I can cheer you all up before I finish, all right? Okay, if you come <laughs> to an offering and you don't bring anything, then my logic would say that probably hasn't cost you much. Yeah? <laughs> if you don't bring anything, it doesn't cost you anything. If you bring out of your abundance and your overflow, well... You know, that's very generous, but it hasn't cost you anything. It's not a sacrifice, is it? It's not a sacrifice. Jesus talks about this, you know, about the wealthy guy chucking his money in, but he was just giving out of his abundance. And he's saying, well, that's okay, but it's not a sacrifice. But the one who he observed was the one who didn't have much, but gave, and it hurt. All right? It's not a sacrifice unless it hurts. So I would come back to that in a moment, but I want to get that, that little challenge out of the way and just push you through that little bit of, oh, Morris, that's a bit mean, and, and then hopefully I can finish on a better note and you'll all think I'm a nice guy. So that's, uh, that's where I'm heading. Okay, so what are these spiritual sacrifices? It says our bodies are a spiritual sacrifice. I love this. In Romans 12, Paul says that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What it says in Romans 12, verse 1, is that we are living sacrifices. Why is that an important statement? Well, unless you've not noticed, normally when you sacrifice a living creature, it involves slashing and mayhem and blood, and the creature ends up dead. Yeah? So sacrifice normally entails something dying. And here, Paul said, no, actually, we're living sacrifices. Now, what does a living sacrifice do? The living sacrifice has to climb up on the altar and say, here I am, Jesus. It's all for you today. Everything is for you. You know, I don't wanna, I'm not going to be distracted by anything. It's all for you. And you know, halfway through the day, you've clambered off the altar, you've wandered off, and you're doing something different. And thinking, oh, hang on, what happened to doing all this for Jesus today? Now I'm, I'm over here doing something that I shouldn't be doing. And so the next day you have to come back along. You have to climb back onto the altar again. So here I am again, Jesus. See, God knows our weakness. He's not expecting you to climb on that altar and then behave perfectly for the rest of your life. He knows that we're weak. He knows we all fail. And he's saying, well, come every day. Come every day and present yourself as a living sacrifice. Every day, pick up your cross. Crucify your old nature. Come and say, no, I'm going to live today for Jesus. And if by the end of the day we're feeling a bit tatty, or as we were hearing earlier, we're feeling a little bit black, then the next day we can come again and climb again on that altar and say, we're coming back to you, Jesus. Wash us clean again. We'll go again for today. So this means that everything we do with our body is the opportunity to bring an act of worship to Jesus. Yeah? So this body, you may be uh, pleased to know, is not my permanent possession. All right? Your body is not your permanent possession. Okay? One day you'll throw it away. It's like a coat. You'll chuck it away and you'll be giving a new imperishable body. Hooray? Okay? That's something to look forward to. In the meantime, you have to lug this body around with you. All right? Okay? Paul says you have to wash it and clean it and feed it and da 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 da. Okay, what am I going to do with this body? Well, this body, I'm going to use it as an instrument for bringing glory to God, as a spiritual sacrifice. This is what my body is for. While you're in this life and while you're in this body, you use it as a means of bringing praise and glory to God. So whether you eat or drink, hooray for the curry night, guys. 
or hammer nails or drive a car or make a meal or program a computer or read a book or kick a ball or mend a shirt. Whatever you do with your body, do it for the glory of God. Use your body to bring him glory. Don't use it. Paul says don't use your body as, you know, for, as instruments of wickedness. Use your body as instruments of bringing glory to God. These are spiritual sacrifices. This means sometimes saying no to things that we, our bodies want to do. Say, no, we're not going to do that. Because I want to use my body as a spiritual sacrifice for Jesus. Secondly, our praise and our thanks. Okay, it uh, might include singing or speaking words of praise. In Hebrews 13, 15, it says, Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. This is, I mean, come on, folks. We've got every reason to be thankful, haven't we? Yeah, we've got every reason to be thankful. I think, you know, it is in our nature to focus on the things that perhaps we are disappointed in. You know, it's in our nature a little bit to do that. It started in the garden. God says, hey, take any fruit from any tree you like. Yeah, but what about this one here? No, no, we said not that one. But you can have everything else you can have. Go anywhere, take anything you want, but not that one. Oh, but we want that one. You know, why, why not, Adam, please... You know, world events might have turned out a bit differently if you'd have just been satisfied and grateful for what God had offered you and not be bickering about the one thing that he said no. Yeah, and that would have turned your whole redemption history on its head. <laughs> but the fact is, it's in our nature that we will focus on things that we're disappointed with and overlook just being grateful. Hey, look, he's given you everything. All right? Whatever trials you're facing, it's only for a short time. It's only a blip. This life is like a bit of grass. It'll be gone. Yeah, you'll get through it, and you've got the whole of eternity ahead of you with every spiritual blessing, no sorrow, no tears. It's all there. Everything, you've got everything to be grateful for. And cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Just say, Jesus, I'm grateful. Whatever trials I'm facing, whatever disappointments I'm facing, first and foremost, you need to know I am grateful, and I'm going to bring my praise to you. I'm going to bring my thanksgiving to you. And then, you know, I may have some petitions and intercessions to ask a little later on. But I'm not going to have an attitude of disappointment. I'm not going to spend my life thinking I'm disappointed. How can I be disappointed when Jesus has reconciled me to God? And then thirdly, acts of, of love is another spiritual sacrifice. For, so Paul says, you know, in Philippians, I received the gift you sent. It's a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. It's well-pleasing to God. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So you think, how can I bring a sacrifice to God? Well, be kind to your neighbor. Look after each other. Be good to one another. Look out for one another. You see someone struggling a bit. Oh, we didn't, they didn't make it on Sunday. I'll give them a call. You're doing all right. No, no, I'm not checking up on you. No, no, the eldership police didn't tell me to call you. I was actually just concerned, all right? Because I love you. Just want to check you're okay. Is there anything we can do? Can we cook you a meal? Can we help you with the kids? Can we do the school run? Should we take the kids so you can have an evening uh, together? Can, is there anything we can do to help you? Yeah? Every time this happens among us, God is pleased. It's like a pleasing aroma. Oh, that's really nice. You know, those of you who are parents here, you love it when your kids are being really the model children, aren't they, that you see in all the Disney films, you know, where all the children help each other, walking with the hands and feeding each other their, their little bits of food and playing with each other's toys. That makes a parent feel good, doesn't it? When they're pulling each other's hair and smacking each other and kicking and taking toys, that is not such a blessing. 
You know, and it's the same for God when he's watching us. He loves it when we care for one another. And he sees that as a pleasing sacrifice. So this includes caring for one another. It also includes giving our money. And uh, this is really where I want to bring us into a close here because we're taking our offering here at the moment. This is the second of our journey offerings. Someone has already pointed out the irony to me that I've spent uh, the last half an hour deconstructing the requirement for buildings made of stone. And then I pitch for an offering asking for people to give generously so that we can have a building made of stone. Now, the point is I've observed you are the temple. Yeah? Have we agreed that? You're the temple. I've observed that you're not waterproof. All right? So we need a, we need a building to put the temple in. Okay? So <laughs> I'll let that sink in. So we're having an offering today here, and we're going to bring our offering. We're going to come because we, we are so excited about what God is doing, but we need to make room at the table. We need to make more room so that more people can come and enjoy the presence of God among the temple of God's people. Being here, meeting with Jesus, knowing his presence, experiencing his love, tasting and seeing how good God is. So we're encouraging one another. We're, we're taking this offering. As I said earlier... You know, if, uh, if you give nothing, there's no cost. That's okay. <laughs> if you give out of abundance, you know, I, I, the reason I say that is not because I'm squeezing you emotionally. Come on, give more money. You know, I, I'm not depending on you. I'm depending on God for his provision because we believe we're following this course of action out of obedience. But I'm appealing to you as to where you are with God. Okay? So as I make these comments... Take them as an opportunity to evaluate in what way am I giving to God that is a sacrifice? Because sacrifice involves cost. It will mean forsaking something or not taking something because we're going to give to God. So we are confident that God has led us to this piece of land. You might say to me, Morris, you know, um, uh, you know, when are we going to get this piece of land and when are we going to build this building? You say, well, um, not sure yet. <laughs> That's not become clear. We'll be obedient to God in pursuing this. You might say, well, you know, what, what piece of land are we going to buy? Well, we believe God has directed us to one piece of land and we'll be obedient to him in pursuing that piece of land until he tells us otherwise. And so in the meantime, we're looking to gather and accumulate the resources that we need in order to be prepared and ready to buy the land as and when God releases it to us. So that's what we're taking the offering for here. And I want to encourage you to come and and give generously and to give out of a a cheerful heart and to give out of a sacrificial heart, not out of the pressure of some ranting preacher. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.